Bibles. I think that would be of some help to you. And as was said already, quite lovely, we are in this verse 27 of chapter 3. And Lord willing, we'll finish the chapter this morning. Let's hear the word of the Lord. This is verse 27 of chapter 3 of the book of Romans. Where then is boasting? It is excluded. On what principle? On that of observing, and the Greek word there is for works, on that of of observing the law? No, but on that of faith. For we maintain that a man, a person, is justified by faith apart from observing the law. Is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles too? Yes, of Gentiles too. Since there is only one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through that same faith, do we then nullify the law by this faith? Not at all. Rather, we uphold the law. Amen. Let's pray together and ask God for the help that we need now. Well, Father, clearly, apart from Jesus Christ, I am absolutely nothing. And so nothing of lasting value will come out of this talk unless you give grace and mercy to me as the one who speaks and grace and mercy to those before you now. Therefore, Father, please, for Jesus' sake, to the praise of your glorious grace, by your Spirit, give what is needed. It's more than what we can comprehend. And may, in light of that, may our sins and needs be laid bare by your word, the secrets of our heart revealed and forgiven as you teach us from this text. Amen. Existential Zero. Sounds like uh, the name of some sci-fi movie, but anyway, Existential Zero is a term I came across two weeks ago in this book that I've been working through entitled The Handbook of Christian Apologetics. And I learned this phrase, existential zero, zero. And by the way, existential means pointing to the existence of something. So the phrase existential zero means that God is the only one who has no need at all. So God doesn't need someone and God doesn't need something to supply or support his existence. In other words, God's need for God's existence is zero. Existential zero. He has no needs. So God doesn't need to recharge. God doesn't need something to feed on. God doesn't need to power down like our cell phones and plug into something to charge back up into omnipotence. He doesn't need anything from anyone. Zero. The existential zero. Remember Paul, Acts 17, verse 24, he was preaching the God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands and he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. And the word anything in the Greek is tis. It's an indefinite pronoun. It means God doesn't need someone and God doesn't need something for anything. He would be fine without a world. He goes on. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else, everything else, God, the existential zero. And of course, 
We're not even close to that. I mean, we clearly have a need for our existence which we cannot supply. And in keeping with the text here, the whole human race has a need for righteousness which we cannot supply as the gospel depends on a God who does not depend on you. God, in Christ, has graciously supplied his, think of this, his righteousness. So if your Bible's open, please have a look down. Chapter 3, verse 21, this righteousness is from God. Verses 22 and 23 and 24, this righteousness from God, which comes by faith in Jesus Christ, is free. Can't earn it, don't deserve it. It's free grace. As, verse 25, God, you see it there, in the person of his son, Jesus Christ, as a propitiation, remember that graciously loving act where Christ is publicly portrayed as the final sacrifice for sin on the cross. Meaning at the cross, God is not hiding his anger on sin. God's not sweeping under the rug. He, he is just, verse 26. So God is not hiding his anger on sin. It has been punished. It has been condemned. However, nor is God hiding his love for sinners. That's verse 26b. God makes us right. And everything that God did to show his anger and to show his love is at the cross in the person of his son. God's son, in order for us to have any hope of God's righteousness, which we all need because we are not existential zeros, especially when it comes to our salvation, we need help. We are dead in our sins. We, we all have sinned. So God's son has swallowed up all of God's wrath, wrath. In essence, God propitiates his own wrath, satisfies his own wrath in the giving of his son for our sins. That's why the gospel is good news. So there's no sacrifice which we can make which can earn God's righteousness, can earn God's acceptance, can earn God's love, and earn God's promised care over our lives. So at the cross, no one can accuse God of condoning sin and no one be in doubt of God's love for sinners. Indeed, we can say, and again, if you look down to your Bibles, verses 21 to 26, we can say that those verses reveal... By bearing our punishment in our place, God has satisfied his own wrath. God has demonstrated his own, ju uh, his own justice. God has displayed his life-altering love. God has redeemed us from slavery to sin. And God has justified us. That is, accepted as us as righteous in his sight, now and forever, world without end, no charge against us, no record on us, but only by faith in Jesus Christ. God has done all this. The gospel depends on a God who does not depend on you. Now, in light of all that, as you look down at verse 27, doesn't that question that Paul writes, doesn't that make complete sense? Where then is boasting? Where is it? Think of it this way. Find a place in verses 21 to 26 of chapter 3, based on what Paul started writing in chapter 1, verse 18, for two and a half chapters, which condemns all humanity, he just points out our sin pretty easily. Find a place where we could boast, assert ourselves in anything, boast about ourselves in our salvation. Whether it's a private conversation or a public proclamation, find a place where we could boast. The assumption then is pretty clear. Just like Paul said in chapter 2, verse 1, you see it there? That we have no moral high ground to make judgments on others because whatever we say about them, God's word says we do the same thing. Now, here in verse 27 of chapter 3, Paul's like, there's no room for pride. 
There is no room for boasting uh, or any of its expressions at all. So what Paul does then in verse 27, he kind of reopens his diatribe. Remember in the previous verses, he was having, having that mythical conversation with a person, a kind of question and answer time, thinking about every question someone could come up with, with what, what Paul says about sin, about salvation. And here, Paul's doing the same thing. thing. So the first time, the conversation was about God's judgment, and now it's about justification. In fact, all of chapter 4 and all of 5, Paul's going to keep getting us deeper and deeper in this doctrine of justification. So for now, what we're going to do is we're going to work under three headings. They're in the back of the worship folder. The first one makes complete sense. It's humility. That's verses 27 and 28. Where then is the boasting? That's verse 27. Okay, so the, the word boasting in the Greek is a really vivid word picture. It's kind of funny. It means your neck is out and your head is up. In other words, this is a strut. The only thing that came to my mind is like John Travolta staying alive. You know, he would strut down the street like, everybody look at me. That's what this idea, that's the picture that you have. This person is strutting. This is by life and by lip. They're making much about themselves because of who they are or what they've done. Boasting. Now, whenever a person boasts, it's going to do two things. If we boast, it's going to inflate ourselves, and it's going to deflate others, including God. So think of a head growing, sucking air from somewhere. It's going to deflate God, and it's going to deflate others. And clearly in this context, boast of then is the native tongue of fallen men and women. And when you read the Bible, people boast a lot about themselves, what they've done, what they have, especially religious people. Indeed, the Jewish religious person in the Gospels is we find the nature of Jewish religion at that time having kind of a fierce awareness of their chosen status, which was fine, and they had this intensely devoted uh, law to live up to, which was fine, and it might sound good, all that moral zeal, but here's the problem. When the very embodiment of the law, the Lord Jesus Christ, was set before them, you know the Gospels, the word, the living word that they claim loyalty to, they want him out of the picture. They want him gone. They want him dead. And later on, when Paul and Peter preached the gospel, so many Jewish people reject the gospel. Meaning, their moral zeal was just for themselves. And in their pride, our boasting, all that is exposed. Listen to Augustine, what he wrote about this. All human virtue is depraved if it's not from a heart of love to the Heavenly Father, even if the behavior conforms to biblical norms. Let me say it again. All human virtue, all the good we do is deprived if it's not centered on God, even if the behavior conforms to biblical norms. Well, let's say someone's mad at you and you do not want them mad at me, the you, <laughs> and so you say you make some appeasement but you don't care about God and his glory. The only reason why you're making up is because you don't want them mad on me, mad at you. That's a sin. That's what the religious Jews did. Listen to your Bible, Romans 14, 23. It may help us. Everything that does not come from faith is sin. Because if it doesn't come from faith, in other words, rooted in, the, in what God has accomplished in the gospel, it's a sin. Well, this might help you. Remember the person I mentioned last week from a long time ago, way, way back in another state? 
He was mad at God because at that point, his daughter wasn't a Christian and she was living a terrible life. And remember, he couldn't understand after all the work that he'd done, all the stuff that he did, why wasn't she a Christian? But it was clear he wasn't doing those works by faith. He was trying to propitiate God, satisfy God by his works, by his deeds to make sure that his daughter would become a Christian. Every father understands we want our children to become Christians. But that is classic paganism. Trying to offer God stuff to get what we want. All those deeds, attending, going, reading, travel, was trying to propitiate, satisfy God. And if that worked then that gentleman would have something to boast about. So it's so subtle, isn't it? But sometimes it's not so subtle. Listen to your Bible. Luke 18, 11. Remember the Pharisee and the tax collector at prayer? God, Pharisee, I thank you that I'm not like other people. That was the boast of the Pharisee, rejecting his need of a Savior, inflating himself, deflating others. John 7, 49. These people do not know the law. That was the boast of the Pharisees. Again, they reflected that they were the only ones who kept the law and they were the only ones doing right. And the, and the rabble, the crowd, they didn't know what they were doing. But of course, the Pharisees would reject their need of a Savior. Again, inflating the self, deflating others. Mark chapter 12, verse 39. Mark, Matthew 6, verse 5. Matthew 6, verse 2. The hypocrites who loved the best seats in the house, loved to pray publicly, loved to impress people with their wealth and religious deeds... All signs of their mind that God was for them and God was blessing them and he was with them because, you know, look at our obedience and look at what we have. Hence, they thought they could boast. Total hypocrisy, completely rejecting their need of a savior, inflating the self and deflating others. And so the religious Jewish person at this time imagined by rights they were heaven's only protected favorites. Which is why Paul says, look at your Bible, chapter 2, verse 17, and the same chapter, verse 23, relying on the possession, possession of the law, bragging, root word, boasting about their relationship with God, law, boasting about their relationship with God. But it wasn't just the religious Jews who were boasting. Again, look at your Bible, chapter 1, please, verse 30. Paul's talking about the Gentiles and the Roman world. They were also insolent. That's rude, lack of respect arrogant, and what's the final word there? Boastful. Jews boast, Gentiles boast, but not us Christians. There's no way we're going to boast, right? I wish I could tell you that. This is from 1 Corinthians chapter 4. And by the way, Paul used the word boasting to the Corinthian church more than any of his letters because apparently they had a big problem. This is what Paul says. Do not go beyond what is written. Okay, don't go beyond your Bibles. Then you'll not be puffed up by being a follower of one over against the other. Remember, the problem that he was addressing is that were the people there were playing the who's the better guy game. And they were making judgments on their leaders that they had no right and no authority to make. So what Paul says is, don't go beyond the Bible. And then he says, for who, make, for who makes you different from anyone else? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast, same word, as though you did not? You see? So our whole, not just our salvation, but our whole existence and our whole salvation is a gracious gift, gift from God. Therefore, verse 27, where then is the boasting? 
But what do we know? By nature, people love to boast. We will boast in our fallen self. Meaning human beings, according to the Bible, we can boast about our wisdom, we can boast about our strength, we can boast about our riches, we can boast about our obedience, we can boast about tomorrow. James said not to do it. We can boast about tomorrow. Our enemies can boast against us. Psalm 94, evildoers are full of boasting. You boast in your arrogant schemes and on and on. We can, of course, we can store our boast in our hearts where no one will know except God. However, listen carefully, it takes the grace of God, it takes the work of God in the gospel, 2 Corinthians 1.31, to boast only in the Lord. Galatians 6.14, only boast in the cross. And this is one of my favorites. It takes the grace of God, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 30, to boast about the things which show our weakness. Therefore, Paul will say, I will boast all the more about my weakness so that Christ's power may rest on me. We can't do that by nature. That's a gracious work of God. And therefore, thus far in the epistle to the Romans, do you find, do we find that we personally have anything to boast about other than God and our Lord Jesus Christ in the gospel? You know what Paul's answer is? Of course not. It is all God, and therefore the emphasis, listen carefully, the emphasis falls on faith and not our works. So look at your Bible, please. Verse 27, where then is boasting, it's excluded on what principle or, or really because of what law? On that of observing the law? No, because of the law that requires faith. And that's the idea. There's a principle here. Faith saves, not obedience to the law. And so the law of the gospel is only by faith. That's the only way that we can be acceptable to God. And so what that does then, it, it attributes salvation entirely to Christ and so decisively eliminates all boasting and creates the need for faith or trust in Christ alone, not just once, but as a way of life. Because Paul has said, as sinners, we are justified by faith. And do you see it there, verse 28? Do you see it? For we maintain. The idea is we've logically computed this. We've run the equation. We maintain that a person is justified, justification, by faith apart from works of the law. So justification is a must. If there's no justification, there's no hope for sanctification and glorification and adoption and all and all. So it all begins with faith in Jesus Christ. So Paul, what he's doing, he's destroyed the Gentile and the Jew at anyone's ground for boasting and keeping the law, whether it was the law of Moses or their own law of conscience, uh, Romans 2.15. But there's more than that. Because now he says, if you're going to understand the law of God properly, then it has to be properly understood now in terms of faith. A faith which anyone, Jew or Gentile, you or me, can exercise. Because what Paul is saying, listen carefully, is the law's purpose is to produce faith in Christ and not faith in our works. Again, the law's purpose is to produce faith in Christ and not faith in our works. So if you know someone doubting their salvation, don't, I would recommend that you do not take them to their works first. Take them to Jesus first. Take them to the cross. Start there. Start there. Why? Because Paul is saying that the law's purpose is to produce faith in Christ and not faith in our works. 
So the law's purpose to produce faith in Christ eliminates utterly all human boasting about a person's work, about their good deeds, to try to establish their righteous standing with God or improve their standing with God. If God has the, in view of you, the perfection of Jesus Christ, can you get, in the view of God, can it get any better? Now, I hope you understand this. When the law was given, it was not given to produce. Okay, cool, I get this. I see the list. Give me some time. Give me some good instruction. Give me some motivation. I can do it. That's not what the law was done for. It was not, okay, I'm doing it. And now because I'm doing it and I'm seeing you're not doing it, I'm going to lean on you a little bit. No, rather, you see the law of God. It's utter perfection. It's like, oh, no. I can't do this. What am I going to do? I am not enough. Enter Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ has always been more than enough. Because only in Christ is the law, whether the moral law or the law of conscience is totally fulfilled. And by faith in Christ, a person can be credited, given the perfect obedience of Jesus, just as if we have kept every law, but only by faith. And you see, this is why boasting can be such a terrible thing. Boasting divides people. Boasting confuses people. It can be a source of anxiety when what we boast of is taken away. Because it will be. But if God has accepted the Christian on account of the cross as a free gift, then what is there to boast about? We've done nothing to deserve it. We only deserve judgment. We owe everything to Jesus Christ. That's our first point. The gospel produces humility. Where then is the boasting? Second point, unity. Verses 29 and 30. Is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles too? So if the cross promotes humility, then it also promotes unity. I mean, look how much unity we already have. We're all sinners. And all of us who have faith in Christ are justified freely. So we all are given the same amount of the righteousness and perfection of Jesus Christ. So we're off to a great start. We all, unity... And if the good news of justification by faith alone removes all boasting, then, then it also removes elitism and discrimination and bias and judgmentalism. And frankly, the Jewish people at this time, they needed to understand this. Even though this was not new to them, and we said this earlier, they were very much aware of their special covenant with God. Chapter 3, verse 2, do you see it there? It was to the Jews which God had entrusted a special revelation and a host of other privileges we'll find out later on in Romans. However, what they forgot was God's plan was not to exclude the Gentile world, but to include the Gentile world so that all people may know God's blessing and become part of God's family. But you know your Old Testament, most of you do. Time and time again, they failed. So they believed that the Gentiles were somehow outside the domain, here it is, of their God. And so God was really only their God. God was Jewish. It would be something like us looking at the outside world, this is so silly, and say there's no way those people over there can become Christians because, you know, only Americans can become Christians. God loves us more than every other nation. That's obvious. I mean, look at us. Isn't that silly? Or how about this one? This is our church, not God, so only a certain type of person is, is welcome here. Isn't that silly? Think with me. 
the Jewish Jonah didn't go to preach repentance to the Gentile, Gentiles in Nineveh, not because he thought he would fail. Rather, he was afraid that he would succeed. He knew how merciful God was. But there's more. Rahab, a pagan Gentile prostitute, found favor with God. Ruth, she was a Moabite, which means her race began with incest. incest. And so Ruth was the great-grandmother of David, the Jewish people's greatest king. Naaman, a captain of the army of Syria, he was healed by Elijah of leprosy. Abraham, where did he come from? He was a pagan. He was a sin-filled heathen who grew up unbelieving and an idol worshiper. That was in their Old Testament. God was the God of the Gentiles too. In fact, he was using the Gentiles. But you know what? There is none so blind which, which will not see. They failed. Christ did not. And because he told his followers to go everywhere in the world to declare, look, your sins can be forgiven. Declare that everyone can have peace with God. The war is over. But only by faith. And a lot of, a lot of people go. Not just in our own neighborhood, but other places. Because they believe that Jesus is needed and that God is the God of the whole world. His sovereignty is not just limited to his people. His sovereignty is over the whole world. His purposes are being worked out even in human rebellion. Just look at the cross. So, verse 29, God is not a Jewish only God. He is the God of the Gentiles, the entire world. Verse 30, since there is only one God. Let me think about that for a minute because Paul, as a pre-converted Paul, he used to love the exclusivity of the Jewish uh, faith. Everybody else are dogs, Jews, we're glue. And now it's all put away. And now the truth of the gospel applies to, to everyone. There are no distinctions. The race or face or nationality or class of people, sex, verse 30, the circumcised, the uncircumcised. We still have human distinctions. They're there, but they neither affect our relationship with God nor they get in the way of our fellowship and love for others. What do we say time and time again? At the foot of the cross, the ground is level. We are all in the same need as a Christian. We all receive the same righteousness. We are sisters and brothers. The ground is level at the foot of the cross so that everyone who belongs to Jesus belongs to the same family. We eat at the same table. I was telling the kids on Wednesday night that every seat in the table of God is the best seat so we don't have to fight over seats. It's a, that's the mystery of heaven because there's only one way to be right with God. Only one way of salvation, Jesus Christ. It's so simple, isn't it, on one level? Christian, keep your table, which is really God's table. Keep your table large. Keep your table large. So, the cross humbles us. It unites us, and finally, it purifies us. That's our last point, verse 31. Do we then nullify the law by this faith? Not at all. We uphold it. So Paul's final question is super important because the new covenant, which replaced the old covenant, is not something like right, replacing something wrong. Rather, it's something that is complete, which is replacing the incomplete. Indeed, the new covenant, which is complete, is the fulfillment of the old covenant. 
because both the law and the gospel are expressions of God's grace. Remember that. They, they dovetail together since the gospel justifies those that the law does what to? It condemns. And both are grace. It is a grace to be condemned by the law that God gave us. It is a grace to be justified by faith in Jesus Christ. And the question here is, is pretty simple. Okay, if we're justified by faith and not our obedience, Paul, are you encouraging disobedience? And Paul's going to get to that more specifically in, in Romans 6. He touched on a little bit in the early part of 3, but that's, you understand. If we're justified by faith, is it fun, fun, fun now? You know, till our, we die? So there's no rules and there are no law. We're antinomianists uh, against law. So it's do as I please and we can drop the Old Testament. You see his answer, verse 31. Do you see it? Not at all. The idea there, a thousand times no. Rather we uphold or establish it. Okay, here's the question. How does faith in Christ establish the law of God? And let me say this to you. The answer is far more than we can now obey, even though that's good news and it's one of the answers. But I'm going to give you three And the first two are just as important as the last one. First, okay, how is the law established? How does faith establish the law of God? First, Christ established the law by paying the penalty of death on those who broke it. Meaning, when Jesus said in Matthew's gospel that he came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law and the prophets. He was speaking of his sinless life, but he was also speaking of his sin-bearing death. It's, it's called the active and passive obedience of Jesus. So the active obedience of Jesus is when he lived on this earth, he actively obeyed God perfectly. That's the active obedience. And then the passive obedience, this is important, listen. The passive obedience is he's led like a sheep to the slaughter. He didn't put up a fight. I'm not guilty. How can you do this to me? No, he was led like a lamb to slaughter. The passive obedience to Jesus Christ. What were the people saying? Why don't you do something? Defend yourself. Get down. It's like cotton in the ears. Passive obedience of Jesus Christ. That's the first. The second, Jesus established a law by fulfilling its purpose, which was this. This is Galatians 6, excuse me, Galatians 3, verse 24. Purpose of the law was, was the law was like a tutor, schoolmaster, leading us to Jesus Christ so that we could see that we could become justified by faith. Think of it this way. On Mondays, I volunteered at a local elementary school. And so a long time ago, earlier this semester, I had to take one child, just one child, to get water. And so the door was there, and the water fountain was right there. It was just like, and so I was like, let's go. And I was walking to the water fountain, and I turned around. They were nowhere in sight. I was like, I'm going to get in trouble. I'm, I'm going to fail as a volunteer. <laughs> How can you fail as a volunteer? Apparently, I found a way. So, got, got the kid, and I said, let's go get water. And this is what I, you know, instead of going right to the water fountain, he was like, this, and this, and this, and this. And I was the tutor. Come along now. Come on. We're going to get to that water fountain. I promise your teacher that we're going to get you. And the little fellow started drinking. I was like, oh. And on the way back, I said, we're not going to tell anybody that we were lost. Okay, okay, good. No, I'm just kidding. That's the law. Come along, children. Come along. You know you can't keep the law. You know you need a substitute. You know you need a savior. You know you can't boast. Finally, if we receive justification, which is the greatest free gift in the world, 
then we've been given a new heart in the shape of God's moral law. And we can keep it. But not by our natural strength. By the Spirit's power. We can please God and serve God by the Spirit's power. So I want you to bear with me. There's all the difference in the world is when Paul writes about obedience, this is what he does. He gives us a whole lot of gospel. And then he says, you can do it now. He does not say, I'm giving you a whole lot of gospel and here's how you do it. He says, here's why you can do it. There is a big difference. That's why when you read like Colossians, Paul put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, purity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is adultery. He doesn't tell us how. He tells us why. Because we're new creations, not under any form of condemnation. You've been changed. You've been changed. It's the same thing with Titus. We read it last week. Remind your people to be good. Obey the law. Don't speak evil to anyone. Don't be argumentative, but gentle. Show yourselves agreeable to everywhere. everywhere. And then what does he say after that? Because of the gospel. So he doesn't say how. He says why. So that even our obedience, we may not boast about ourselves. Oh, why do you have such a great marriage? Well, well, let me just tell you. Do you have a couple hours? I do this and I do that and I do that and I do that. I don't, you shouldn't start there. Well, the grace of God in Jesus Christ. And then you sh- take the long road and talk about what Jesus has accomplished at the cross. Take them through the cross. Even if you have to drag them there, take them. And this is what the Spirit has done in me. This is what he's done in me. So that even in our obedience, we may not boast about ourselves. Listen to your Bible. This is Romans 8, 3, and 4. For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own son in likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Romans 8, 3, and 4. And loved ones, that is one of the greatest differences in becoming a Christian. The law which, which crushed you to death is now the law you delight to obey in the power of the Spirit of the Lord Jesus Christ, but only by faith. And what Paul is saying, he sees in the gospel that God has righteously devised a way to justify ungodly sinners who could never justify themselves, and he makes them new and gives them power to obey so God alone may be boasted about. Isn't that amazing? That's the safest thing for us. Our righteous God devised a righteous way of righteously justifying sinners, ungodly sinners at that, makes them new, gives them new power, and the way is Jesus Christ alone. Do you know that him, I will not boast in anything, no gifts, no power, no wisdom, but I will boast in Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection. Why should I gain from his reward. You lose the wonder of the gospel. You lose so much. Why should I gain from his reward? I cannot give an answer. But this I know with all my heart. His wounds have paid my ransom. And you see, loved ones, the moment you say that and you mean it, 
then pride and boasting is just dissolving. It's just dissolving. And the moment pride and boasting is dissolved, something else wonderful happens. And I want you to listen carefully to me. When pride and boasting is dissolved, then all the coping mechanisms that we built up to try and hide from other people what we're really like, they just, they just go away bit by bit. And then the amazing truth of the gospel is that we are becoming and we can become the true self the Lord Jesus Christ wants to make us. So, so let's say you accomplish great things and you have great heights and, and no one is near you. You will be amazed by the power of God to stay humble and so, so extraordinarily ordinarily in the midst of all that success. That's what the gospel does. Or let's say, which probably most of us here, we're just going to live a basic life. Nothing fabulous, pretty plain. People will be amazed how content you are with what you have. No pretends, no hypocrisy, only because you belong to Jesus Christ. Now here's the big question. Are you Christ? Do you belong to Jesus Christ? If there is no Christ in you, then it's like the scaffolding being taken down from a building only to find there's no building there. Looked like stuff was going on. The scaffolding was removed. There's nothing. And like Uzziah we read of this morning, the only thing that people can say about us is he had leprosy. In other words, you're still in your sins. But if Jesus Christ is yours, when that scaffolding is taken back there is this great structure and the people will say wow wow look what God is doing look what God has done look what God was doing in the midst of all that life oh what happy people we would be together if boasting was excluded the law of God established Justification tied so tight to our mind and the Son of God was magnified. Came across a quote that I had from years back. There is nothing in us or done by us at any stage of our earthly development because of which we are acceptable to God. We must always be accepted for Christ's sake or we cannot ever be accepted at all. This is not true of us only when we believe it is just as true after we have believed. It will continue to be true as long as we live. Our need of Christ does not cease with our believing, nor does the nature of our relationship to Him or to God through Him ever alter. No matter what our attainments in Christian graces or achievements may be, no matter what our attainments in behavior may be, it is, it is always on His blood and righteousness alone that we can rest that we can rest. Humility. Unity. Purity. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, how we wish we could fully grasp the magnitude of your grace to us. 
How we wish we could feel more closely and speak of the, the power of the blood of Jesus Christ, which cleanses us of our sins with even more experiential knowledge. So we thank you for the gospel, the good news. Bathe us. God, bathe us in it, we pray. Keep reaching and changing those parts of us that, that stubbornly resist your law. But also, God, may stubbornly resist your grace and your graciousness and our true need of it. May we all together embrace Jesus Christ, not as an ethic or not as a law, but as a living word, a real person who is God. And then believing that you are a loving Father who does everything well. To God be the glory in the church. For Jesus' sake we pray these things. Amen.